Well, we are back. This is one of my favorite times of the year for so many reasons. The church kicks back up for a whole other church year, and the school things happen, and yes, college football happens, and uh, all the new things that come with fall, and so one of them is it brings me back to teach where I left off in the spring as you and I have been working through the Westminster Confession of Faith. Tonight we handle chapter 15 of Repentance Unto Life. Let me say that uh, this particular chapter is one of the more Westminstery chapters in the Westminster Confession, by which I mean uh, what I'm going to teach from the Confession and show from the Scriptures tonight is a little different from the way this topic is handled by many other believing uh, 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 Christians. But I think for that reason, and you'll see the biblical reason for the way our doctrine is shaped, I think it will be a particular blessing to you. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 15. I'm going to work through the, the, the paragraphs, beginning with uh, the first one. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, the doctrine whereof is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. Now that opening statement says so much. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace. I think for many Christians, maybe most Christians, the topic of repentance is a scary one and a threatening one because there's this an assumption that it is a work that we do and we know that it's hard for us to do it. And we often don't feel like we're doing it well and we, we see the difficulties of doing so. But the, the scriptures would tell us that it is an, uh, it's repentance unto life as the grace of the Lord. Listen to, this is Acts 11 verse 18. This is when Peter comes back after the, the Cornelius episode. Cornelius and the, the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles takes place in Acts 10. In Acts 11, he's reporting back. And when, when they're persuaded that the Holy Spirit has come to these Gentiles who profess faith in Jesus, one of the things they said was this. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, the very fact that they would choose those words in that kind of setting shows you that this is not some peripheral ancillary doctrine. It's not merely something downstream from salvation. This is a, this is a way of saying it in, in a place, we, we might say, so to the Gentiles, God has also granted salvation. And he, meaning that, that they meant that, and they said he's granted repentance that leads to life. And so the, the doctrinal heading in the confession, repentance unto life, comes from this statement. Now, uh, Robert Shaw makes this statement, that repentance is called repentance unto life because it is inseparably connected with the enjoyment of eternal life. And in order to distinguish it from the world, sorrow of the world, the repentance of the world, which works death. Well, we'll see how that statement is going to be worked out in, as this chapter goes forward. Oops, wrong one. What do we mean that it's an evangelical grace? Well, Shaw says it is styled a grace because it is the free gift of God. Repentance is the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Now you got to hold on, Pastor. Repentance is something we do. Oh, that's absolutely true. But it is, it is something God, it is a duty that God demands and expects of us. But this is where Augustine's prayer is so relevant. Sovereign Lord, command what thou will, but grant what thou commandest. And so God commands repentance, but the grace whereby repentance takes place is from the Lord. And it is wrought in the heart by the operations of the Holy Spirit. And so repentance, which is, we'll see, is this turning from sin, turning to the Lord. It's not that, okay, God, we, we believe and, and, and faith is God's work for us, but repentance is something we do. Well, we, we do do it. But it is a grace that God gives us when you see someone who has really, whose lives has been radically changed. And not just the outward pattern, but the inward motivation, the, 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 the affections, as the, as the Puritans would call it. The inward drive, you're looking at the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's not something that's merited. It's the grace of God. It's bound up with the whole of that salvation that comes by grace. Listen to Second Corinthians 7.10. For, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Now, so the, the apostles are very keen to note that repentance is not just being sorry about it. 
It's not just generalized bad feelings and a desire to be better. And the world often experiences these things on its way to death. But the actual godly grief for sin, the repentance that leads to salvation, is that which the Holy Spirit gives. Now, this is one of my favorite verses from Zechariah, Zechariah 12, uh, where he says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy, so when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Now that's actually one of the proof texts that the divines give for the statement that it's a grace uh, of repentance of the life. And what they're highlighting there is saving repentance is with reference to Christ, not only in terms of what he gives, but here in terms of what he he suffered because of our sins. And so when, we are, when we're born again and we're, we're engaged in repentance unto life, the grace of repentance, we, we look to him. That's what he says here. They will look on me, on him, on him whom they have pierced. And I trust you know what I'm talking about. We go, Jesus suffered those things because of my sin. And so our whole orientation, of course, you know how it is. Sin is this fun thing that, oh, if only we can get away with more of it. I mean, American advertising is built on the appeals of the pleasure of sin. And we're bombarded and we're raised. Okay, sin is something I want to do as long as I can get away with it. But the Christian, with the grace of evangelical repentance, looks to Christ, him whom we have pierced, and we say, oh, my, my whole attitude towards sin is rocked. By realizing that my sins brought these sufferings onto him. And so, uh, whereas legal and unsaving repentance is directed towards God's wrath, uh, so many of the foxhole conversions, uh, people, they are sorry for what they did because they're worried about the punishment. Saving repentance is directed in faith towards God's mercy. Uh, now, now, of course, uh, the preaching of God's judgment, the preaching of God's wrath is a very biblical thing to do. Of course, you don't want to go to hell. Of course, it's, like, it's, the, the, it's Christian and Pilgrim's Progress who's fleeing the city of destruction. Uh, life, life, eternal life. He's fleeing from the wrath to come. Uh, of course, that's true. But, but saving repentance is also motivated and chiefly motivated by the mercy that awaits us as sinners in Christ. Unsaving repentance mourns for punishment. Saving repentance mourns for the sinfulness of sin, for the sin itself, not just for the punishment. Uh, that, that introductory statement also points out, and it is to be preached by every minister of the gospel. Uh, it's a really big deal. It's not a new thing, although it's a very almost pervasive thing today, where there are schemes of even Reformed evangelicalism, where sanctification is a, a negative topic, that if we talk about it, we're only going to discourage people. There's a, a particular approach that's been popular in the last 30 or 40 years called sonship theology. And you've probably learned here that whatever we think about it, we don't like it. And, and there are I, I like their doctrine of justification because it's the exact same doctrine of justification that we have. But the pillar, and, and, there, and there's a pretty big sonship presence even in some of the PCA churches in our presbytery. But the idea is if you point out the need of repentance, it's going to discourage people. And so uh, uh, the antinomians who maintain that repentance ought not to be preached, alleging that it leads away from Christ and it hurts people. I've had people say this to me. Rick, if you, if you preach the need for obedience, and the Bible does call us to obey, if you preach that repentance is an integral part of salvation, you're going to be driving people away with legalism. Well, let me just say that John the Baptist didn't think so. He appeared, Mark 1-4, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus did not think so. In, in Mark's gospel particularly, the very first preaching of Jesus is the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, which, by, if we're, of course, our studies in Jeremiah have helped us with that. That long-promised Messiah and the new covenant, all that was looking forward to as, the, as the, the restoration of God's people, that time, long promise has come. What are we to do? Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. And so the doctrine of repentance and the command of repentance is to be preached, and it is, in fact, not a threat to our, our hope. 
to our spiritual motivation. I think Ezekiel 36, 31 is interesting. When I say Ezekiel 36, you're probably thinking verses 25, 26, and 27. I will take away the heart of flesh. I will give you a heart of stone. That wonderful passage on regeneration. Uh, I, I will give my spirit to you. Well, in Ezekiel preaches the, the rebirth and the coming of the spirit, the, the, the changing of the heart from a, a dead heart to a living heart. One of his applications is this, then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. And so it's, it's a mark, in fact, of the renewed heart that our whole attitude towards sin is changed. And, and we've still got some more to working out to do about that. But there's a fundamental change that is a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in our regeneration. You know, one of the truths about becoming a Christian is you, you may feel worse about yourself having been converted than you did before you were converted. In fact, that's very likely. Becoming a Christian makes you feel worse about yourself, but it makes you feel better about Christ, and you end up feeling better as a whole. Your whole, your whole, uh, you know, your, your anthropology of self is totally recast where you, you, uh, you abase yourself. And you, what does Paul say? I despise myself in dust and ashes. But we know that the Son of God claims us. And, and through union with Christ, we are heirs, heirs of all the promises. It is to be preached. Well, what do we mean by repentance? Paragraph 2. By repentance, a sinner, out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger but also of the filthiest filthiness and the odiousness of his sins as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sin so as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. That's a pretty big statement, but that's because it's so comprehensive. And so repentance, again, it's not just that, that I got caught. That we, what, we, what we are, our sorrow, and it's certainly for sure, sorrow is an integral part of, of, of saving repentance, evangelical repentance. But what we sorrow for is our sinfulness and the sins in our hearts and the sins of our hands. The wickedness of what is, of what is in us and of what we have design, done and desire to do because we see that it's contrary to the perfect holy nature of God and it's a violation against God's law. You know, many people today will say, you know, it's not just a sin because God says so. That is the thing that makes it most sinful to a Christian. That, that the fact that God says so. That is a violation of his commandment. That, that is, that's not kind of on the periphery of what, why we're opposed to it. It's at the, very, at the very center of it. In fact, I would say this. It is sinful to base your repentance primarily on something else. It isn't, that's why David in Psalm 51 verse 4 says, Against you, against you only I have sinned. When we, and we, we will sometimes pray. Our, one of our confession of sins is uh, basically Psalm 51 in our morning services. He, he's not saying, I don't, care how, how, I don't care that I affect anybody else. What David's saying is that the sense that I violated your holy nature and so callously transgressed your law. And of course, he's talking there about his adultery with Bathsheba. And he'd been in the, he'd been in the grips. We read 1 Samuel 12, you know, and David, he's just in the grips of lust and just so rapidly, this snowballing effect, and he's committed this terrible sin. Uh, and then when, and after Nathan comes to him and brings him to repentance in Psalm 51's response to that, he says, Lord, the, the thing that I can only think about is what I've done to you. He's not denying that he sinned against Uriah. Oh, he grievously sinned against Uriah. But the thought of his transgression to God had changed his whole attitude, and, and he, he, he grieves and mourns for his sin. Um, and so it has in view the righteous, holy nature and righteous law of God. Uh, Chad Van Dixon puts it this way. Saving repentance views sin as a dirty affair. A dirty affair because it's contrary to God's nature. And it's also a personal affair because it is an offense to the personal God. And that's not just some sins that we tend to culturally think are dirty. We all, as we see, that definition can change, can't it? No, no. Sin is as a whole a dirty affair. That's a personal wound against God. And so repentance hates sin as, as violating God's righteous law 
so that he is proved right in his judgment. That's Psalm 51, verse 4 again. Part of biblical repentance and confession of sin is not just, you know, sure, I'm not perfect. I mean, who's perfect? No, no, it's, I deserve the righteous wrath of God. I don't want it. It's not like I'm glib about that. But, But God is proved right when he condemns me and judges me because of the heinous nature of my sin. That's Psalm 51, verse 4. Uh, but it not only turns from sin, and, and see, here's the particularly distinctive doctrine we teach, but the, in its very essence, repentance turns to Christ and to his grace. It's not just, you know, I, I mean, I'll just pick a sin. I, you know, so a man has a, 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 an adulterous affair, and it's not just that he goes... Oh, you know, I really need to, I don't want to do that again, which, by the way, would be a good and profitable reflection. Uh, but no, no, but he, he's actually, he repents of his unrighteousness. He repents of his sinfulness. He repents of his guilt in such a way that he's turning to Christ. He's turning true Christ. And Dixorn says, I love this statement, true repentance not only sorrows for sin, but sees a savior. And this is why maybe you're dealing with a, a child or a, a sibling or somebody who's close to you who, uh, who's really you know, walked away from the Lord, or really has gone in the path of sin. Our outreach to them is not merely, dude, what are you doing? You know this is wrong. That is part of it. Whether you say dude or not, you can tell I have college students. Uh, but, but it's also, but do you not see the mercy and grace that God will have towards the penitent? Because it's, it's part of the psychology of, of the hardened heart is, uh, is, is despair towards God. But biblical repentance perceives the mercy and grace of God for the sinner who repents. And there's a, I would even say that the, 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 the primary movement is a turning to Christ. But you see, if you cannot turn to Christ without turning from sin as God, as Lord, as, as way of life. You think of how 1 John puts it so many times. Uh, if anyone, you know, if anyone claims to be a believer and, they, and they, there's no repentance in their life, they're deceiving themselves. Why, why is that? That's not because he's elite, not because he's some hardcore pastor who's really, you know, fed up with sin. Uh, no, no, it's because the, the nature of repentance is turning to Christ, and that same movement is a turning from sin. Uh, here's some great verses. There's so many. Joel 2, verses 12 to 13. He says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow in anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. And so you're talking to someone who is, is, on the, is, is either on the precipice or who's, who's gone over the precipice into, into gross sin. And we want to say to them, you're, you're not only turning your face towards what's going to destroy you. My friend, you're turning your back on mercy on genuine compassion. It will not be the case that you had no other place to go because there was no compassion for you. No, no, no. And these, these are great verses, by the way, in these sorts of situations. Uh, Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Well, that's a good biblical call to repentance. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God that he, for he will abundantly pardon. So bound up in repentance is a fundamentally gospel-directed move that's, that's, that's move, motivated by the grace of God through his word. Repentance, Shaw says, is an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ by faith that melts the heart into penitential sorrow for sin. Now, by the way, it ought to be the case in each of our lives that as we're drawing close to Christ, as through the ministry of the word, through our own Bible study, through our, our worship, through our prayer lives, where, where the grace of God is becoming more real to us, as that's becoming true, there will be a corresponding repentance. There'll be a, there, there will be things about our character that we'll desire to change. And we've never had the leverage. You know, here's the question. Where's the leverage to move a, a large object? You need leverage 
The leverage is the character of God and also the grace of God. And as you and I are growing in, in grace, we will be growing in godliness, which I think is exciting. I praise the Lord that this is not the final version of me, that there's growth, that there's spiritual advancement, that there's character change, that there's, a, I mean, in many cases, you know, people say to me, can I be forgiven of sins I've not confessed? I said, you're not even aware of 80% of your sins. You know, some of them, you'll, you know, as you get more mature, you'll go, oh, no, I have an unsanctified mouth, or, or, or I have the lust, or, I, have, I have covenant. You didn't even know that until you've been a Christian 15 years. And I, I wonder what the next five years are going to reveal to me. But you see, that's, that's a part and parcel with communion with God and with communion with the grace of Christ and reliance upon that. The, the turning to Christ and the turning from sin are one and the same. And the aim of repentance is not that we get out of jail. It's not that we merely avoid the detrimental effects of sin and jail, hell is a bad thing. God's chastisement is bad. Sin don't work. Uh, uh, That's all true. But the aim is a restored and renewed relationship with God. You know, think of, again, Psalm 51, you know, take not the spirit from me, restore to me my communion with you. I say here it's the very opposite of how Adam responded to sin in the garden. Adam is aware, he, his, his eyes are opened, and he, which is not so fun. And he realizes that he's a sinner, and he runs from God. And he tries, he tries to escape the consequences of sin, which is a vain pursuit in a, in a garden or a world governed by a sovereign, omniscient God. No, we're to, we're to turn to him and run to him, evangelical grace. A grieving for sin, trusting in Christ's mercy, and longing for renewal with God. You see, these are the things. We grieve over sin. We trust in Christ's mercy. We long for communion with God, renewal of that. On those bases, repentance grieves for and hates sin. And purposes, this is a confessional language, purposes and endeavors to walk in godliness. Now notice how, that's, look, that's the biblical truth. Repentance involves a purpose to walk no longer in sin but in godliness. But look how far down the sentence that is. The, 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 the center driving it is that we, we see the sinfulness of sin. We, what was J.C. Ryle's great statement? Terribly black must be that sin the, the anti, or the, the, that can only be cleansed by the blood of Christ. That, that reflection, which I commend to you, is a keenly beneficial one. That the, my, the nature of my sin is so heinous that, the, that it, rec- it could only be removed by the blood of God's Son. By the way, it means that God loved me so much that if that is what was required to redeem me from my sin, he was willing to do it. And then I trust in the mercy of Christ, and I long to be close to God, the natural result, as it were, supernatural as it is, that I grieve and hate for sin and I purpose and endeavor to walk in godliness. And that's why a, a, a characteristic Reformed expression is the fruits of repentance. And we'll talk about repentance and its fruits because saving repentance bears fruit. Guess what? Unsaving repentance, by and large, doesn't. You know, there's no change of the heart. There's no, there's no plan. To, there's no, no serious endeavor. There's just, to let me escape the consequences and then it's over. But true repentance is seen in its fruits. Uh, Acts 26.20, this is Paul. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And so the tree is known by its fruit. And evangelical repentance, saving gracious repentance, will bear the deeds thereof. And, and, and those deeds are the evidence of the sincerity of the repentance. In 1 Thessalonians 1.9, that great line, Paul says to the Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols to serve the, the living and true God. Moreover, as Robert Shaw helpfully says, the truly penitent person will then particularly guard against those sins to which they were formerly most addicted and before whose influence they are most ready to fall. And so as we're repenting, and we all have our own backgrounds, we all have our, 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 our sin journeys, and there are certain sins for any number of reasons to which we have been particularly prone, well, the person who's sincerely repentant, who, who, who desires communion with God, who desires to live unto him, is going to go, hey, you know, maybe I don't need this. Uh, I don't, maybe, maybe I should change this habit. Maybe I should break this off. Maybe I should put this safeguard up. That's not legalism. 
That's sincerity. We will guard particularly those sins to which we formerly were most addicted. You know, many people are, are convicted because it's such a universal sin to sins of the tongue. When you read James 3 and what he says about sins of the tongue, it's pretty striking. And so the Christians who's convicted about that will say, will be praying. You know, one of the ways we guard ourselves is by praying about them. And there's an intention that, by the way, this is why the Puritans journaled. And you keep hearing today about, about morbid spirituality from the Puritans. Maybe there was a little bit of it, but that's, that's for the most part, that's a smear. They took it seriously, and they, before they go to bed. That's true, they didn't have an internet, there was no college football. It's not, and they would, they, you know, today, you know, when I spoke to John, my neighbor, I belittled him. And, Lord, and, and there would be a, a little entry there. Notice how, notice how prone I am. Lord, help me next time I see John. As soon as I see his face, that I'll pray for God. They're working at, and, and you're going, oh, they're so legalistic. No, no, no. They're filled with grace. And, and so they are purposing and endeavoring to walk in godliness. Um, now, notice as well, you will notice this in Scripture, that, and this is why, Conversion and repentance are spoken of virtually synonymously in the scriptures. Conversion and repentance. Let me give you an example. Uh, Luke twenty four forty seven. I love this passage. It's the Luke inversion of the Great Commission. And Jesus says, you know, let the gospel be proclaimed uh, in, in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. And that's at the very center of Jesus' great commission. That's the night of his, that's not the, the later meeting, that's the night in the upper room in Luke 24. And Jesus says, here's what we're going to proclaim to the world. And see, we wouldn't talk this way. That repentance and forgiveness, now you're not repent, repentance and forgiveness synonymous. We might say conversion and you know, the new birth and forgiveness. And Jesus is using repentance, so understood, virtually not entirely, but virtually synonymous with conversion. Now, why is that? Well, I think A.A. Hodge puts it well. By these marks, it may be seen that repentance unto life can only be exercised by a soul after and in consequence of its regeneration by the Holy Spirit. The first thing you'll say about the born-again heart is it's repenting, so understood. The born-again heart is one that is repenting. It's repenting of lies. It's repenting of desires. It's repenting of former gods and idols that serve false righteousness. But the born-again heart, is, is, it turns as a result. And, and, and you'll see this every time someone's born again. There's a turning, and it's a turning from sin to Christ, uh, the, the lies of the world to the word of God. And repentance is so unified with, with the new birth because it depends upon it and it's energized by it and it manifests. It is the first manifestation of our conversion. Uh, Hodge says conversion is generally used to designate the first actings of the new nature, while repentance is a daily experience of the Christian as long as the struggle with sin continues in this heart and life. This is why Martin Luther in the, in the first of the 95 Theses said, when the, when the Bible says repent, when our Lord says repent, he means that the whole of life is to be characterized by repentance. You know, that's the first of the 95 Theses. Now, there's a culture, there's a, a Protestant Reformation kind of context for that. But what Hodge is saying there is conversion is the, the, the initial divine act that goes from death to life, and the process that it initiates is repentance. You might say, well, no, it's sanctification, but you see these are all bound up together. And so the day-to-day experience of the born-again heart is a turning from and a turning to. A turning from sin with a hatred of it. Not just of the consequences, but of the sinfulness, the wickedness of sin and our own sin. And a turning to God in Christ through the grace that he offers. And it is necessary. Paragraph 3, although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon therein, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. You see what it's saying? You don't trust your repentance for salvation, for justification. You're the ground, the basis 
of your pardon of your sin and your justification is not that you've repented. But they are so organically joined that a person who, who is not repentant cannot be considered to have been forgiven. Now, in part, this is contrary to Roman Catholicism. And, of course, so much of the background, uh, the, the cultural context uh, in which the confession is being written is with regard to that. But we think of penance in the Roman the, the Catholic life. The Roman Catholic life is driven by the, what they call the sacrament of, of penance. And their conception is that pen, penance is a compensation for sin. So you, you committed venial sins, and so you're not in that bad a shape, but you, you've got to make up for those, so... And I don't say this to belittle it. It's just how it works. 20 Hail Marys and 42 Our Fathers and, you know, 20 bucks. And now you have... Comp- but see, that is, that is totally at odds with the gospel. There is nothing that can compensate the guilt of my sin than the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we are never, in, in an evangelical way, while we should be looking for the evidence, the fruits of repentance, if we say, okay, I'm forgiven because I've repented, we are, we are misthinking and we are standing upon a reed that will not support our weight. Uh, moreover, the confession argues the discharge of a duty never can remit past offenses. You have a duty to repent. And so let's say you do repent. Well, you still owe, you know, you got thousands of sin. It doesn't do anything about those. Of course you did your duty. Good for you. Now, what about the sin you committed five minutes beforehand? No, our pardon rests in the finished work of Christ for our atonement in accordance with God's promises in the gospel. However, those who are justified and forgiven must repent. Now, I mean must not as a condition, but as a consequence. And it makes sense. Uh, how, does, how, how, do we, how are we justified? Through faith in Jesus. How do we get faith? By the work of the Holy Spirit, renewing our hearts. Well, if the Holy Spirit has given you faith, renewing your heart, guess what else that renewal of your heart involves? It's repentance. And the same renewal, the same gift of grace that, that takes us from death to life, from unbelief to, to saving faith, also works in the grace of repentance. You cannot have one without the other. If you don't have them, the, fr- the roots of it, and the fruits of it, then you don't have any of it. Uh, Shaw says, forgiveness and repentance are inseparable, by which he means that an impenitent sinner cannot be a pardoned sinner. Now, I, sh- I should probably say it here. I knew he was going to have to say it. This is where Christians get terrified because they go, I don't think I'm repenting very well. But see, the very fact that you're, you're talking that way, you're talking as a repentant person does. I have yet to have an unbeliever come to me and say, Pastor, can I meet with you? I loathe my sin. And I, I long for the glory of God and, and because it's right and to, to fulfill his law and to be close to him. I, I long to repent of my sin. Not once has an unconverted person ever said that to me and not once will they ever say it to me. Why? Because only the repentant person can say that. So if you say, I don't know if I'm saved because you said that, because I'm struggling with my sin. That struggle with your sin is called repentance. The problem is not for Christians who are struggling with their sin. It's for those who are not struggling with their sin. Those who are at peace, particularly in a fundamental way. And I've told the story many times. Uh, 25 years ago, I had a young man come to me in Philadelphia. He said to me, you know, Pastor, my Reformed theology is impeccable. And I knew we had problems, right? This was not going in a good direction. He says, but I feel nothing. Is that a problem? And as I, I said, look, you're describing yourself. I've just met you a, few, a couple of times. I, tell me about the changes in your life. There's been no change in my life. And uh, I said, do you desire? He goes, no, I don't. And I said, okay, by your own self-description, you are not saved. You are not. That, that is not uh, something that can be true of someone who's forgiven, who is born again, all of which goes together. Those who are justified and forgiven must Repent. And forgiveness, therefore, is never sanctioned to sin. You know, people go, if you believe in predestination and salvation by grace alone, oh, it'd be great. You'll just sin all you want. But the thing is, as Paul argues in Romans 6 1, meganoito is his Greek, may it never be so, the actual born again person never reasons that way because they've been born again. Because they've been born. And it does show, I think, that one of the doctrines that we need to recover in our, in, both in our official doctrine, in our preaching, in our witness, and in just the way of our thinking is the, the biblical doctrine of regeneration. 
when, if you're a new creature, the old is gone, the new has come, then that changes the whole matrix. Uh, Hodge says repentance is the natural and instant sequence of the grace of regeneration. It is intricately bound. When you're born again, repentance goes with the new mix. It also embraces an element of faith in Christ so that he who repents believes and he who rep- believes repents. But what Hodge is saying is that, that everything that goes into repentance is what saving faith in Jesus is. And so saving faith in Jesus is organically, necessarily, a turning from sin to him. Well, let's wrap this up with some practical, the biblical practice of repentance. This is paragraphs uh, 4, 5, and 6. First, as there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. The, The smallest sin will send you to hell. It must do so. But there is no sin so great. You say, oh, you don't know what I've done. Uh, Well, tell me about it. There is no sin so great that the penitent, the believer, the person who is indwelt by the grace of God, who who turns to God and his mercy in Christ and turns from his sin. You think of Manasseh. I just preached Manasseh a few weeks ago. It's just Manasseh. I mean, this is the Adolf Hitler of the Old Testament. You go, who's the worst king? It's a tough competition, and he wins it. He wins a tough competition, and he repents, and the Lord receives him. And, and, and why? Because of the value and the virtue of the blood of the Son of God, the, the, which, which is able to pay even uh, the, the greatest debt. Now, secondly, men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. Very pastorally valuable statement. And then finally, as every man is bound to make private confession of sins, of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof, upon which and forsaking of them, he shall find mercy, so that he, so that he that scandalizes his brother or the church of Christ ought to be willing by a private or public confession and sorrow for his sin to declare his repentance to those that are offended who are thereupon to be reconciled to him and in love to receive him. Let's look at these. Uh, first, penitent believers are not to be tormented over their guilt for heinous sins. And you may have sinned in ways that you look back, and you, I mean, it's happened to me. Things I'd forgotten about, I remember I'm like, that was a big sin. Whoa, wow, wow. But the blood of Christ cleanses us from all our sins. Uh, and so we are not to be grieved. And by the way, one of the most common questions I'll ever get, you know, the two most common questions are, is my dog in heaven? You know, the answer to that is, there will be dogs in heaven, but not your dog. That's the answer. I'll, I'll leave cats alone. Uh, the other one is, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Which is talking, it's talking about a particular thing. I'll just say right now, you cannot both believe in Jesus and commit the unforgivable sin. Because the unforgivable sin is to call Christ Satan and ascribe his saving works to Beelzebul. That is not, you're not doing that if you're a believer. So I just kind of get that out of the way because this is going to be broadcast on the internet and hope that the emails come rolling in. And I'm happy to answer them, by the way. Um, there is no sin so great that the penitent believer is not forgiven of them. Now, this is meant to be contra the Roman Catholic doctrine of mortal and venial sins. Of venial sins of peccadillo. See, actually, that's, there are no peccadillos. They're wrong on that side, too. And, you know, you lied. Well, you know, what's the big deal? But adultery, murder, these are mortal sins, and mortal, it's complicated, but mortal sins don't kill you. They kill the grace you got at baptism. You're in big, big trouble if you commit a mortal sin. By the way, you commit those sins all the time, as Jesus would exegete in the Sermon on the Mount. So the whole thing's messed up. But they partly have the mortal versus venial distinction in view. But the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. And so what we're to rest upon is the finished work of Christ. And all my sin, those I committed before I was a believer, those I've committed as a believer, are washed away in Christ through faith. Uh, Secondly, he's making the point that we must confess and repent of sin particularly. Now that's, that's a very valuable thing because it's very easy to go, yeah, you know, I'm not perfect. I mean, who is? That's not repentance. 
Uh, biblical repentance not only says, look, I know I'm not what I should be. I'm sorry about that. No, it, it repents of particular sins. Particular sins. And it does so particularly. And in our prayers to the Lord, we, by the way, we're, we're not, we don't confess our prayers to the, to the priest or to a pastor. There may be in a rare occasion where you need counsel, you'll come and talk about it. But the grace that when we're confessing, we're seeking forgiveness, it is God alone who forgives sin. So we confess our sins to God. But let me say, when you confess your sins to God, don't just go, hey, you know, I, look, I know I messed up. No, we, we need to say, Lord, I, I got a tongue issue. Or Lord, I've got an anger issue. Or Lord, I've got a lust issue in my eyes. Nobody saw it, but you saw me, Lord. Or Lord, I got an envy issue. And 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 it in this afternoon we we are, we are to confess our sins. He knows them, and we're just we don't no, no, we don't play games with God. But the point is that we are to know them particularly, and we're to own them before the Lord. And so we confess we confess yes we confess our sinfulness, but we confess actual sins. I've had people say to me not very often here, you know, say we do the confession of sin where we read the law. Why do we read the law? So that we'll know what we're confessing. And I've had people say to me, I like it better, Pastor, when we have a quiet time when we confess our sins without that. Yeah, the problem is you, don't confess, you, you, confess, you, that's, you, you confess one sin but not the rest. And, the value, and by the way, evangelicalism wants to do public things in a private way and private things in a public way. We do public things in a public way. We do private things. Do your private things in a private way. But the reason why we, we read the law and do it is because we need, to be, we, we need to let the Bible define our sin rather than that one thing that's on our... I hate my mother. You know, because every time... Lord, I hate... I, by the way, I love my mother. But I, I, Lord, I hate my mother. Okay, go ahead and confess that. But there's a whole range of sins we need to know. And there's 10 categories. There's a 10 words for that. Uh, date, Paul, look at Paul. The biblical writers do this. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was an insolent opponent. Those aren't throwaway lines. That's the truth. Those are the characteristic sins of Saul of Tarsus. Now, this also means that Christians are able to say, I was wrong. And so you're a father and you blow up at the dinner table. And you're a Christian. What, I know that wouldn't happen to any father in this church. But then you, what do you, you go to your little children and you go, would you please forgive your father because I sinned. You're able to say, I'm right. people tell me, I hear this all the time. You know, my, my father never once admitted he was wrong. I'm like, that must have taken a lot of effort. Uh, a Christian goes, I was wrong, but you forgive me. And I want to confess to you that, uh, that uh, and in our interpersonal relations, hey, I was short-tongued with you. I was short-tempered with you. I wasn't listening or whatnot. We, 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 we're able to, to say we were wrong. And, and there's a, there's a, we, we name our sins in that appropriate way. Now, Christians also take practical sense to repent of sins particularly. And that includes making redress for damage as that would be feasible. The great example is Zacchaeus. He's the mafia boss of Jericho and he fleeces everybody. So he has a plan to make good because he's able to do so. Now, one thing I, I want to stress, and I often stress this, this means that you should be, you should in Christ, in light of Christ with his mercy in view and driven by both a hatred of sin and particularly your own characteristic sins you should be hating, and a desire for communion with God, every one of you, every one of us, should have projects in our lives, both negatively and positively. You know, I'm, I'm, I need to be praying about, I'm just picking things randomly, you know, my envy, my gossip, my lust, my, my whatever. And I need to be developing the grace, they always go together, of gentleness. And we ought, I mean, it's not the kind of thing we even per se should be telling everybody. But we should be able to help people. What, there should be a conscious sense that, look, I, I have, there's this area of my life, I've been slothful. I've, I've actually been kind of stealing time from my employer or whatnot. We should be aware of these things. And knows the emphasis. We should be taking practical steps to repent of sins, not just in some nebulous way, but particularly. Um, there are, and I have Colossians 5, 3, 5 to 9. That's very interesting because Paul, he wants us to attack the roots of them in our desires and affections. We should be praying about the, the desires and affections, the idolatries that are going on in our hearts. 
Now, there are occasions when sin should be repented publicly. Uh, Ordinarily and regularly, our sin should be confessed to God, both generally and particularly. No practice, no, I, I honestly, I have sincere compassion for Roman Catholic priests sitting in some booth listening to all the filth of people's lives. It must be, it must have, it must be so corrosive to the soul. Um, you, you confess to God. There are times where our sin in the language of the confession has scandalized, uh, offended the faith, injured the faith, or particularly wounded another person, in that case, there should be a verbalization of repentance to that person. We might go to them and go, you know, I've been thinking about what happened last Tuesday, and I need to repent and, and ask for forgiveness. And this is how, we, one of the things it means to be a Christian, it doesn't mean that we don't sin, it means that we're able to handle sin redemptively. And in our relationships, I, I, in my marital counseling, I always say marriage, marriage, Christian marriage involves repentance, forgiveness, and new obedience. And we should be repenting of our sins, and, and often we'll need to share our repentance. And there should be forgiveness, and then we regroup around the Word of God, and by His grace we move forward. Um, some sins are rendered scandalous by the office and responsibility of the offender. So that, for instance, pastors and elders should publicly repent of scandalous sins to the church. Um, I know of a minister who I know pretty well who was just removed from his church, uh, and the offense was the plagiarizing of sermons. And it wasn't just non-footnoting, it was preaching other people's sermons. It's very appropriate in that kind of situation for the pastor to come to the church, confess his sin, and to repent of it. Uh, and, and if you're going to bear responsibility in the church, then you're not to be committing scandalous sins. And if you do, there should be a public, we've had some in the life of our church here, there should be a public repentance of those. Uh, let me say this, fathers and mothers in the home. You know, you're, again, it's, I think of the fathers, but I know you mothers are also sinners. Uh, it's hard for me to think of that married to Sharon. <laughs> she watching? Uh, but, uh, uh, and my dear mother, but uh, uh, you, you've all seen it. We're at the beach house, and the guy blows up and stomps out of the room and makes a scene. Everybody's like, that was awkward. Uh, when that's you, you should come back to the family and go, oh, I'm, I'm going to ask your forgiveness. I handled that terribly. I repent of it. I'm, I'm going to be praying and thinking about that. Would you forgive me? And, and now you're able to move forward. Next time you're there together, everybody's not going, he's going to blow up again, you know. Uh, and I think fathers and mothers, we, we model the gospel, the grace dynamics of our home. It's no threat to my authority as a father to say to my children, would you please forgive me because I sinned. I, I should not, never have said it the way I did. I, I, I neglected a duty. I should have been there. Would you please forgive me? That, that ought to be, and, and particularly, you see, when the people who, who are the God-ordained leaders of the home, the church, those kinds of things, it's not like you're constantly, for, you know, because you, you go, well, you're sinning all the time. It's true, but not in gross, scandalous ways. Um, but when they're repenting, they're setting a dynamic for the church where sin is, is, is the, 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 the dealing with sin is credible. And, and there's a dynamic of repentance, forgiveness, and new obedience. Last slide. Uh, when sins have been confessed and repented, the sinner should be forgiven and reconciled. Now, 2 Corinthians 2, 7 to 8, that's the guy in, in 1 Corinthians who was having sex with his father's wife. I don't know how else to put it. And remember, Paul was a little exercised about that. Uh, expel, excommunicate the guy, he says. What's wrong with you? You're hanging out with this guy. And they do. And we trust the man repents because he comes back. It's the same guy in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, you should rather now turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. And so when a sinner sincerely repents, there's to be forgiveness and, and uh, reconciliation. Now, Peter wants to ask the question, how many times? Peter came up and said to Jesus, How, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Forgiveness of one another is an act of worship to the Lord Jesus Christ in light of his grace in our lives. There is no one who ever has or will sin against you as greatly as you have sinned against God the Father and his holy character and law, and he sent his son to die for your sin. And so forgiveness is an act of worship that we're ready to do, particularly when there's a repentance and there's a restoration. Now, some of you are thinking, 
Oh, great, you know, I've got an abusive husband. Well, there are times, this is why you have pastors in many cases, where there, you need some help dealing with that repentance because there is such a thing as insincere, abusive repentance. And I would point out that, that forgiveness and trust are two different animals. Uh, for Christians, forgiveness should be freely given. Trust is often going to have to be earned. And so I, I've seen some horrific, horrific situations where, you know, Grote, a friend of my wife's, a college friend of hers, had a husband who became a homosexual, and he was leading this horrible, voyeuristic life. And her pastor said, you need to take him back whenever he comes home. And she asked me what I thought. I said, I think you need a new church. You know, cause just because he said, oh, I'm sorry, and she's supposed to be wife to him with no questions asked. And, and uh, the, the hard attitude of forgiveness should be there because we're forgiven. Uh, and, and sometimes you're going to need help discerning these things. But uh, trust is naturally something that is demonstrated by the fruits of repentance. And so the pastor will ask, let's, uh, let's talk about the fruits of this repentance. The fruits are going to give credibility to the process, and that's going to help the trust to be restored. So don't mishear me here in this kind of shallow folly whereby we just, you know, it's under the blood is the expression. It's all forgiven. Well, oh, well that doesn't mean that everything is over in the process in many of these cases. But we are, when someone repents to us, we're not to lord it over them. You know, the Lord says, and I will, I will, we'll see this next week, and I will, or two weeks from now, I will, we will, and I will remember your sins no more. Not that he has a memory problem. It's an act of his grace not to remember our sins. We, by an act of our grace, of God's grace, do not remember others' sins. Uh, what about fallen pastors? It's more complicated, to be frank with you. I think that there are some gross public sins that uh, can categorically. You can look at every one. I'm not taking away the need to look at every one. But the biblical standard for being above reproach, there's a reputational aspect involved, I think will mean there'll be, there'll be pastors who fall into gross heinous sin and they'll be fully restored, but they won't be restored to their office because that, that's a privilege and there's a different dynamic for that. Uh, I use the example, if you're uh, the bank vice president and you embezzled money, you probably don't need a desk in the bank lobby. It's just not good for the bank, if you follow my meaning. And so with pastors in their office, it's a little more complicated. But forgiveness does restore us to love and fellowship. That's what it is with the Lord. He forgives us our sins. He remembers them no more. He, he, he bathes us in his love. Your relationship is entirely restored in Christ. We're to mirror that in our handling. Chad says, we need to reaffirm our love to those who repent. And in doing so, we will be showing the same mercy to the others that our Father in heaven has shown to us in Christ. That's where we're going to be thinking with one another. How is my response a reflection of how God has dealt with me in his mercy and grace? And how will I show my worship to him and my thanks to him and how I respond to this person? Well, isn't that a great chapter? There's a lot in it. The grace of repentance. And what is it that drives it? On the one hand, the character of our God, his holiness that makes us truly hate sin. And then that mercy that is calling to us, return, O sinner, for God has compassion. He, does, he, he, he delights, Micah says, in showing mercy. Father in heaven, I thank you for this time. I pray that you would bless it to us all generally and to each of us particularly according to our need. Be with us all as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.